Last time, you remember, we set out the historical context of the prophet Zephaniah, specifically identifying him with the 7th century B.C. and the days of Josiah, king of Judah, which he notices in the first verse of his prophecy. Furthermore, you may remember we established the uniqueness of Zephaniah as a prophet in two ways. First, in the broad prophetic context of select 8th and 6th century B.C. prophets who sandwich his era. And we noticed that Zephaniah is not a prophet of the suffering servant of the Lord, as Isaiah is. Nor is Zephaniah a prophet of the vision of the dry bones, as Ezekiel is. Zephaniah is not a prophet of the adulterous bride of the Lord, as Hosea is. Nor is Zephaniah a prophet of rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem as Haggai is. These are distinct motifs of these 8th and 6th century prophets respectively, unique motifs which identify them and their prophetic books. However, we also explored the uniqueness of Zephaniah as a prophet in the second place in relation to the narrow prophetic context of the 7th century B.C. Zephaniah is not a prophet of the New Covenant, as Jeremiah is. Nor is Zephaniah a prophet of good tidings for Israel and Judah as Nahum is. Zephaniah is not a prophet of justification by faith alone as Habakkuk is. We concluded by noting in summary fashion that the message of the prophet Zephaniah is the contrast or antithesis between the day of God's just wrath and the day of God's wonderful grace. That outline at the bottom of page one of your handout, the contrast between dies irae and dies gratiae in Latin, day of wrath and day of grace. We therefore identified Zephaniah's unique prophetic message as we pointed out the unique prophetic message of the sixth 7th and 8th century prophets whom we summarized. Zephaniah's message is structured and revealed in a manner unlike any other Old Testament prophet. He is singular. He is alone in his message. There are common threads and common themes, but he has a particularly unique message which has been given to him by God, which was not found In any of the 8th century B.C. prophets, it is not found in any of the 6th century B.C. prophets. It is not found in any of his other contemporary 7th century B.C. prophets. 
the uniqueness of Zephaniah, the uniqueness of his prophetic book, the uniqueness of the prophetic word that comes to him in particular, reminds us that there is a particular uniqueness in the prophetic word that comes to all the Old Testament prophets. They have a distinctive message which is peculiar to them and to them alone. Now, we turn from the prophetic uniqueness, at least in the broad picture, to the national context. The national context of the life of Zephaniah and the history of the kings of Judah in the 7th century B.C. As you turn to the second page of your handout, we began last time with Josiah, a good king who did right in the eyes of the Lord, even as he walked in the ways of David, his father. Now, we want to turn this evening to Ammon, the father of Josiah, and we should know when Ammon died, because the year Ammon died is the year Josiah became king. So what year would we put on the right-hand side of that little hyphen on our outline indicating the year of the death of Ammon? Anyone? 640 B.C. All right, now let's turn to the passages which are indicated there, 2 Kings 21. Once again, we're going to keep our fingers between 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So 2 Chronicles 33 in one finger and 1 Kings 21 with the other. And we'll begin with 1 Kings 21, verse 19. I'm sorry, 2 Kings 21, verse 19. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. All right, let's stop right there for a moment. Now we can fill in the other part of our outline. He reigned two years, so when did he begin to reign? Marge? 642. He reigns from 642 to 640 B.C. Thank you, Arden. Go ahead and proceed, Arden, if you'll read all the way to verse 26. His mother's name was Meshulameth, daughter of Herodes. She was from Joppa. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways of his father. He worshipped the idols his father had worshipped and bowed down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his father's, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against the king, and they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. As for the other events of Ammon's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son succeeded him as king. All right, now in verse 25, uh, your version translated it annals. The better translation is the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And so let's turn to Second Chronicles, and let's read the account of Ammon's reign in Second Chronicles chapter uh, 33, beginning at verse 21. 
And whoever has it, go ahead and read from 21 to 25 for us. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did even in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. The people of the land killed all the conspirators against King Ammon, and the people of that land made Josiah his son, king of his place. All right, now before we turn away from the Second Chronicles narrative, did you notice the difference between the biographical sketch in Second uh, Kings 21 and this sketch in Second Chronicles 33? There is one significant difference. Very good. Second Chronicles adds the humbling of Manasseh. Now, we want to keep that in the back of our minds as we go forward this evening. But notice that contrastive difference. All right. Now, we have a characterization of Ammon, which is extremely negative. He did what in the sight of the Lord? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And specifically, what kind of evil did he do in the sight of the Lord? He brought the idols into the temple, as a matter of fact, and bowed himself down before them. So he is an idolater. And in that, he was following the example of whom? And who is Manasseh? His father Manasseh. All right, so his father Manasseh was an idolater before him. All right. And Ammon follows an example of his father in establishing idolatry as well. Now, as you heard both of those uh, passages read, is there anything positive that can be said about Ammon and his reign? Does either the narrator in Second Kings or the narrator in Second Chronicles say anything positive about him? A good thing he only reigned two years. <laughs> <laughs> He had a godly son, perhaps, okay. <laughs> he eventually became a godly son. Chronicles does record the contrast that he did not humble himself, all right? So that's still a negative, okay? It's a non-positive, but it alerts us to a potential positive. So we want to, once again, keep that in the back of our minds. No, there's nothing positive that we can say about Ammon particularly, now, who are these people that rise up to uh, kill him? His, His own court officials, all right? So this is a palace coup, but they don't get away with it because the so-called people of the land execute them. Now, in Hebrew, this people of the land phrase is very interesting and very significant. In Hebrew, it's Am Ha'aretz, the people of the land. They are the common people. 
generally regarded as the average man and woman in the street or in the fields. This is an intriguing political situation. Obviously, Amun is removed by his palace officials because there's something about him that they don't like, either politically, <clears throat> conceivably religiously, or for some other reason. We're not told what it is, and it's somewhat risky to speculate about it, so I will leave it alone. Uh, nonetheless, this is uh, unusual, and the fact that the then common people of the streets, the common citizens of Judah and Jerusalem rose up against those who assassinated the king and executed them is also a significant tete-a-tete. All right, now we know who Ammon's father is, so we can fill in that blank. And who is it? It is Manasseh. Now we know when Manasseh died, do we not? He would have died when Ammon became king. So what year do we have? 642. All right, now let's turn, let's turn to 2 Kings 21, verse 1. So if you still kept your finger in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, just flip back a page to 2 Kings 21, verse 1. And whoever has it, read out just that first verse, please. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Hepzibah. <laughs> There's Hepzibah. Okay. All right. Now, notice the length of his reign, 55 years. So if we add 55 to 642, we come up with the number 697, which is on your outline. But the significance of this 55-year reign is that Manasseh is the longest reigning king in the history of Israel or Judah. The longest reign of any king in either the northern or the southern kingdom. And what does it say about his character? Verse 2 of 2 Kings 21. Go ahead and read it out, anyone? All right, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So... His character is evil at the inauguration of his reign. All right, now what specifically uh, evil did he do? Verse 3. Kay, do you have it? Verse 6, Lois. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with wizards. Oh, I'm sorry. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And if you'll skip down to verse 16 and read verse 16 for us. Jerusalem from one end to another, 
besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now back to verse 6. What is this business about making his son pass through the fire? He's making a sacrifice of his infant son, correct, All right? So he's burning his child on the altar as an offering to the idol gods that he worships. This is customary in a number of the cultures that are around uh, Judah and Israel at this time, including the Canaanite culture. Uh, they offer up their children in the hopes of receiving blessings from the gods that they worship. And so um, infanticide or infant destruction is nothing new. Uh, It has been present in uh, polytheistic cultures and idolatrous cultures uh, down through the ages. But Manasseh in that 16th verse is extremely bloodthirsty. And as the text says, he fills Jerusalem with blood. All right, now we're going to turn over to 2 Chronicles now. Chapter 33, and read what the chronicler, that is the author of Second Chronicles, says about Manasseh in chapter 33, verses 2, 3, and 5. Second Chronicles 33, verses 2, 3, and 5. Marge, do you have it? So this idolatry even goes back to the Canaanite idolatry, which was present before Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land. Go ahead, Marge, verse 3 and 5. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he brought these idols right into the temple of the Lord. So in God's house, they're worshiping not God, but the idols of the nations, even the ancient idols of the Canaanite nation during the reign of King Manasseh. All right, now, there's one other thing that he does that we want to note in chapter 33 of Second Chronicles. And I'll ask someone to read out verses 10 to 13 of Second Chronicles 33. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to battle. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Verse 13? When he prayed, uh, 15? Verse 13. Oh, 13, sorry. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entry, and heard his supplication and brought him again into Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. 
Now, this is a record that does not appear in uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, the record of Manasseh's reign. <clears throat> the chronicler tells us something that happened to Manasseh that the writer of Kings does not tell us. He tells us, first of all, that the Assyrians capture him and take him to Babylon. Now, why would the Assyrians have come to capture Manasseh? Obviously, because Manasseh rebelled against Assyria. Keep in mind that Assyria is the king of the world at this time in the 7th century. And the only thing that would have induced the Assyrian monarch to come to the West would have been treachery, politically, political treachery, political, tra- political traitorism in the heart or in the nation of Judah. So uh, Manasseh betrays Assyria's overlordship. It could possibly be he didn't play the annual tribute. could be he was uh, uh, reconnoitering or making alliances with other nations around Judah in order to throw off the Assyrian uh, yoke. We do not know the specifics nor the name of the particular king because the Assyrian chronicles do not record this incident. The Bible does, however, and there's no reason to doubt its accuracy. What is more significant about this incident is it reveals that Manasseh did humble himself, humbled himself in his captivity and cried out to the Lord. Now, the fruit of this repentance, or at least we'll put it at this point, apparent repentance, the fruit of this repentance is in verses 18 and 19 of Second Chronicles 33. So would someone read out verses 18 and 19 of that 33rd chapter then? Who are the seers? Anyone? Who are the seers? Well, prophets, correct. Okay, verse 19, Nancy. All right, so the prayer of Manasseh is a prayer of repentance, is a penitential prayer, a prayer that he offered up when he was in prison in Babylon, and uh, God is entreated by that prayer. So Manasseh, having filled the temple of the Lord with idols at the beginning of his reign, at the end of his reign, removes those idols and returns or turns himself to the face of the Lord in repentance and in faith. There is therefore a conversion narrative in the life of Manasseh, though that uh, conversion comes late in his life, uh, probably between five and seven years before his death. And whatever effect it had on him, it obviously did not have any effect on his son Ammon. You will notice then that there is a seed of idolatry that runs through these various kings. And in the case of Ammon, he is reversing the non-idolatrous 
policy of his father. That is, uh, at the, before his death, Manasseh was removing the idols that he had installed. Ammon remove, installs the idols that his father had removed. So we have this reverse paradigm as we move from father to son. We also want to keep that in mind as we look back at the father of Manasseh, because Manasseh is the son of whom? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Very good. David? Um, I'm curious. He brought idols into the temple. What was the interplay with the priest? I mean, the priest would say... Yeah, the priests did not do that. And the reason the priests did not do that is not only the power of the ruler of the land, the power of the king himself, but their own inclination to a kind of religious syncretism. It's quite common in Roman Catholic nations where they allow uh, the, the individuals of that country to worship their their witch doctors and their pagan deities, and they're also allowed to bring those sacrifices to those deities right to the cathedral steps of the Roman Catholic Church in their village. Uh, I know this because my sister was a nurse, missionary nurse in Guatemala, and uh, in uh, Quetzaltenango, that's exactly what happened. They would uh, bring their uh, pagan sacrifices right up to the to the doorway of the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic priests did nothing about it. <laughs> The reason is that, of course, you have this syncretistic, uh, you know, get along uh, kind of religious ideal. And, uh, you know, we're not going to ask them to, you know, cast out their uh, their idols. We'll just simply say that they can worship God uh, as well as their idols. In this case, <clears throat> there is evidence in the Old Testament that the idolatry of the Jews was to place God in, to put God in the place of Baal. Because Baal can be translated Lord, and uh, Yahweh can be translated Lord, and so they just switched the categories. In other words, they worshipped Yahweh as Baal, or Baal as Yahweh, as the case may be. A religious syncretism, that is a combining of religions which should not be combined, but nonetheless they were done, they did so for political purposes, for social purposes, for religious purposes, for ecumenical purposes, or in the case of fertility worship, which Baal cult was, for the purpose of sexual purposes. Okay? All right, now that brings us then to uh, uh, Hezekiah, his father, whose dates are given there, another lengthy reign. He actually overlaps the 8th and 7th century B.C. And if we turn to 2 Kings 18, verse 3, 2 Kings 18, verse 3. Yes, I'm sorry, Ben, go ahead. Those dates that you have there, others have computed. Because Manasseh died in the <coughs> Yes. Um, you, you will notice that 697 is the beginning of Manasseh's reign, and Hezekiah dies in 686. So why do we argue for what appears to be a contradiction in the dates? There's a very famous book written back in the 1950s by a Seventh-day Adventist Old Testament scholar, a man named Edwin Teal. The title of that book is The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. And in that book, and actually 
Teal, like many Seventh-day Adventists, believes in the inerrancy of the Old Testament. In that book, Teal, who was a student of William F. Albright, the most famous 20th century archaeologist at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Teal solved the tension between the mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings. And what he posited was co-regencies. Co-regencies. In other words, to solve the apparent discrepancies, he argued that the sitting king would allow his successor son to reign as equal co-regent while he was still on the throne. And until his death, he would be accorded uh, some recognition as the succeeding king-to-be, but his father would still have the ultimate power. And so Teal worked out a, uh, a, a scale of how the kings from Solomon down to Zedekiah, including the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, from uh, Jeroboam I down to Hoshea, of how those numbers of their reigns in First and Second Chronicles would agree by overlapping co-regencies. It's a fascinating study. It has been accepted by conservative and liberal scholars alike as a solution to the apparent contradiction of the numbers with respect to the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah. And so that's the reason you have what appears to be a discrepancy here. It's not really a discrepancy. It's an indication that there's an overlapping co-regency between Manasseh and his father, Hezekiah. Satisfactory, Ben? Uh, You don't necessarily have to agree with it, but nonetheless, it is a very meticulous, based on archaeological data, that is from the Assyrian annals, Babylonian annals, and the Bible. It's based on data which fits everything into a consistent pattern of uniform dating, and it solves the apparent tension uh, with these numbers of the kings in the Old Testament. All right, so uh, turning again to Hezekiah and to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 3. What's the character of Hezekiah according to that verse? If you'll read it out, whoever has it. So, Hezekiah is a good king, and you'll notice that slogan there. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. It is the very same slogan that is used to describe Josiah. It does not describe Manasseh. It does not describe Ammon. It describes Hezekiah and Josiah. Exact same phrase of commendation. All right, now what about the particulars? <clears throat> the particulars of the good things that Hezekiah did. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7 of this 18th chapter of Second Kings. Anyone who has it, please read it out. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him wherever he went he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So he obeys the law of the Lord, particularly the commandments of Moses. He's familiar with the Torah, that is, he's familiar with the Pentateuch of Moses. 
and he rebels against the king of Assyria. <clears throat> now we're going to ask who the king of Assyria is in a moment and what that rebellion produced, <clears throat> but let's go on and take a look at the portrait of Hezekiah as we find it in 2 Chronicles 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We can skip over verse 2 because that second verse is a duplication of verse 3 of 2 Kings 18. But let's begin with verse 5. 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 5. Please read it, whoever has it. Listen to the Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord and the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned back their backs on him. Thank you very much. Now, notice in verse 5 what he does. What does he tell the Levites to do? Consecrate themselves. And what else? In the temple. And what else? Remove defilement from the sanctuary. So to clean out the uncleanness or defilement that is present in the sanctuary, in the Lord's temple... Anybody, you know anyone else who did that? Or instructed the priest to do that? Marge? Josiah did. Okay, once again, we're noticing some parallels between Hezekiah and Josiah. <clears throat> the cleaning out of the uh, rubbish which had accumulated in the temple. Hezekiah instructs it to be purged, and so does Josiah. <clears throat> All right, now turning... Uh, forward to chapter 30 of First Chronicles. Chapter 30, verse 1. There's something else Hezekiah did. Whoever has it, please read it out. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. The Passover is celebrated in the days of Hezekiah. Now, it's mentioned here because it's so significant, implying that it had not been celebrated for many years. Consequently, Hezekiah, having read in the book of the Law of Moses that that's what God wanted uh, to be observed once a year, he orders the nation to observe the Feast of, of uh, Passover. And now over to chapter 31, verse 1. Once again, read it out, whoever has it. Now when all this was finished, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah and break the images in pieces and cut down the groves and threw down the high places and the altars out of all, out of all Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim also and Manasseh until they were, they had utterly destroyed them all. And all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession into their own cities. Thank you. So, the last thing that we note is not only does he cleanse the temple, but he removes the idolatry from the land, including the temple, observes Passover, and uh, 
dedicates himself and the nation unto the Lord. All right, now, Hezekiah has a very close friend who is alongside him through all of this uh, observation and reformation and uh, cleansing. Who is the close friend of Hezekiah who was beside him throughout most of his career? Marge? It is Isaiah the prophet. Yes, it is Isaiah the prophet. And in fact, the book of Isaiah duplicates part of 2 Kings. Isaiah 36 to 39 is a retelling of the narrative of 2 Kings chapters 19, 18, and 19 and following. Now, in that narrative, which Isaiah repeats, more or less at the hinge point of the book of Isaiah. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and chapters 36 to 39 are the description of the siege of Jerusalem. It's almost like Isaiah's book swings on the hinge around the pivot point of the siege of Jerusalem under the king of Assyria. Now, who was that king of Assyria, and what was the date of this siege? Go ahead, Terry. Okay. Sennacherib. It is Sennacherib who is named in the Bible in the biblical text. And the year is 701 B.C. It is a date that we can be very certain about because that siege is recorded in the Chronicles of the Assyrian Kings. All right. So in 701 B.C., Isaiah and Hezekiah, with the help of the Lord, withstand a siege of the Assyrian army 185,000 soldiers surrounding the city found dead one morning after the Lord had promised to deliver them uh, by uh, his own mighty hand. All right, so this is a positive picture of a good and righteous king. He's not only described as doing good in the eyes of the Lord, we see the, the record of his goodness. He purges the temple. He reinstitutes Passover. He uh, <clears throat> depends upon the Lord. He removes the idols. He is a friend of the prophet of the Lord, the spokesman who has been sent to inform him and to direct him and to encourage him. But then we come to Second Kings chapter 20. And in Second Kings chapter 20, verses 12 to 18, we read about one of the final things that Hezekiah did. Verses 12 to 18, whoever has it, go ahead and read it out for us. At that time, Merodach Baladon, Merodach Baladon, Mm -hmm. son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouse, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palaces or in his, all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. When then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. 
time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, that will be born to you will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, now, what is it that was so foolish about this incident? Hezekiah had been spared death. His life was extended 15 years by the grace of God. And as if to celebrate his uh, longer life, he opens up Jerusalem to the ambassador of the king of Babylon. Would you like to celebrate the extension of your life too? In other words, would you like to have a party too? Or at least a celebration? What's wrong with this? This must have still been, <coughs> this must have still been the Assyrians who had deceased him back in 701. No, this is the king of Babylon. This is Merodach Babylon, Merodach Baladan, who's a thorn in the flesh of the king of Assyria, on and off. Now, keep in mind, keep it, keep in mind that Babylon is a city within the Assyrian Empire at this time, and it has its own local ruler. It has its own local king. Now, he's not king of the world like the king of Assyria is in Nineveh, but nonetheless, there is a king in Babylon, and this fellow Merodach Babylon, we, Baladan, we know a good deal about because we know him from the Assyrian annals, besides the Bible. So he's a lesser king, but he is a king in Babylon. Pride. Whose pride? Hezekiah's pride, exactly. It's his pride to show off his treasures. His pride to show off his palace. To show, it's a pride to show off everything that is in Jerusalem to the Babylonian king. Is it going to come back to bite him? Not Hezekiah. But it is going to come back to bite the descendants of Hezekiah. It's going to come back to bite the Judeans. It's going to come back to bite the nation and kingdom of Judah. In other words, what Isaiah rebukes Hezekiah for doing is opening himself to his future enemy, opening the kingdom of God to its future enemy. <clears throat> there wasn't anything wrong with him celebrating the fact that God had extended his life but to celebrate it by opening up your treasure house and opening up your uh, palace and opening up your whole city to the, to the kingdom, which is eventually going to destroy it, is simply inviting trouble. Because, mark my words, when the Babylonians heard about all the wealth that was in that temple and in that city, they said, Jerusalem is a plum for the picking. And eventually, they picked that plum. no. Not Merodach Baladan, not in the seventh century B.C. or in or or in the days of Hezekiah, but within a hundred years of Hezekiah's death, 586 B.C., they did pluck that plum. In fact, had plucked it more than once, as we will see uh, after our break. Hezekiah, a very good king, a virtuous king, he did many wonderful things in faithfulness to the commandments of the Lord and to the grace of God. But 
He made one foolish step that would haunt the nation of Judah until its destruction. And on that note, we finished the second page of the handout and we're ready for page three. We'll take a break and come back to that after we've had a little respite. Get to your maps that are behind that third page as we draw attention to them. It'll help you visualize some of the material that is here. I'm going to go over the broad picture here, and then I'm going to go back and repeat more narrowly focusing on Josiah and Judah. You will notice that on the outline, I have underscored the world power, which is Assyria, the African power, which is Egypt, and the emerging world power, which is Babylon. And we're dealing here essentially with the 7th century B.C. again. We've looked at the prophetic context on the first page of our outline, placing Zephaniah in the context of the prophets. On the second page, we've looked at the national political context, where we've looked at the 7th century in terms of the history of the kings of Judah, from Josiah backwards, Josiah, Ammon, Manasseh, and Hezekiah. Now we want to look at the big picture internationally. We want to see what's going on in the world in the 7th century B.C., which is the century of Zephaniah's prophecy and is the century of Josiah's reign. So we'll begin with the world power at the beginning of this century, which is Assyria, in a time which the scholars and historians call the Pax Assyriaca. Now, that's a Latin phrase. Does anybody guess what it means? Pax. Peace. It's the Assyrian peace. Now, it's dated, I'm going to date it from 722-21 down to 612. Why am I saying 722-21 B.C. down to 612? Marge? That's when Assyria captured and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist. And the Assyrians transported people from other countries into that region who became the ancestors of the Samaritans, ultimately. So Israel was pacified. And in general, in the 7th century, the Levant, which are the city or the countries on the border of the eastern Mediterranean seacoast, the Levant was peaceable, including Judah, and the Assyrian Empire was peaceable, with some exceptions, as we'll note as we go on. But this period, the Assyrian peace, is the prelude to its own demise. It will come to an end with the death of the Assyrian Empire in 612 B.C. and the the collapse of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, in that year, 612 B.C. Right now, who are the kings of the Assyrian Empire in this century? They they include Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal II. Those are the two major figures who dominate this 7th century. Now, Esarhaddon 
who is the succeeder, successor to Sennacherib. We mentioned Sennacherib in the siege of Jerusalem in 701. Well, Esarhaddon takes his place on the throne of Assyria when he dies. Esarhaddon had two clashes with other powers. He had a clash with Egypt, and he had a clash with Babylon. Now, in 671, as you can see, ten years after he became king of Assyria, Esarhaddon decided to conquer Egypt. Now, Egypt at this time was under a dynasty of Nubian monarchs, that is, black African kings, ruled Egypt. The Nubians, either Sudanese or Ethiopian, depending upon how you uh, understand that term, they had come up the Nile and they had conquered the Delta region. And they had had been successful in the so-called 25th dynasty which was a black African dynasty that ruled over Egypt. So, Esarhaddon wants to invade Egypt, and Egypt has a black African or a Nubian king named Taharqa. And Taharqa fights off the Assyrian invasion. Now, Esarhaddon withdraws and goes back to Assyria until 669, two years after he had first invaded Egypt, and he returns. Egypt is in a state of revolution, and so Esarhaddon sets out to put down the revolt that is going on in Egypt. But he dies on the way, and it's interesting that he dies at Haran, Now, we'll talk about Haran or Haran a little later, but you also know Haran as the place where Abraham stopped after he first left Ur the Chaldees on his way to Hebron. So it is in that city that Esarhaddon dies in 669. His successor, Esarbanipal II, invades Egypt in 663. Now, during that invasion, he marches up the Nile. That is, he goes south. So he goes, we would say down the Nile, but he's actually going up the Nile because he's going up towards the headwaters of the Nile, which come out of Central Africa. He marches up the Nile, and he gets all the way to Thebes, which is hundreds of miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And Thebes, he besieges and sacks and perhaps even floods by using the Nile River, by diverting the waters of the Nile, perhaps. Now that event is recorded in the Bible. That is, Asurbanipal's sack of Thebes in 663 is recorded in the Old Testament. It's a very crucial part of a prophet and his message in the Old Testament. It is the message of the prophet Nahum. And last week we noted that Nahum is a prophet about the city of Nineveh. Nahum and Nineveh, N-N-N. Okay? So, Nahum is is focusing on Assyria and the destiny of Nahum, which he prophesies is going to be destroyed. And in chapter 3, verse 8, Nahum says, 
Are you, Nineveh, any better than Thebes, or no Ammon, as he calls it? Now, no Ammon in Egyptian means city of Ammon, the god Ammon, Ammon-Ra, the sun god. So Thebes was also known as no Ammon, and that's the reason that you have that uh, variation in Nahum chapter 3, verse 8. Nahum is then referring to this historical event. In 663, Assyria conquered Egypt's Thebes. Nahum prophesies that Nineveh is going to be no better. Nineveh is going to be destroyed like Thebes was destroyed, or no Ammon was destroyed. So, one of the key hinges of Nahum's prophecy is this historical event, namely the invasion of Egypt by Ashurbanipal in 663 and the destruction of Thebes, which he likens to the coming destruction of Nineveh itself, which occurred in 612 B.C. Now, the Assyrian Empire also has a clash not only with Egypt in this 7th century, it has a clash with Babylon. During the reign of Ashurbanipal, whom we've mentioned already, the city of Babylon, which had its own king, as we pointed out a little bit ago with Merodach Baladan, the city of Babylon, which had its own king, who incidentally was the brother of Ashurbanipal, the city of Babylon rebelled in 652. And it had a state of revolt against Ashurbanipal and the major Assyrian ruler for four years, from 652 to 648 B.C. The reconquest of Babylon by Ashurbanipal, in other words, putting down that revolt in Babylon by the Assyrian army, drained the Assyrian empire of its power, its energy, its wealth, its resources, and much of its willpower. In other words, this four-year conflict from 658 to 648 during the reign of Ashurbanipal, the last major emperor of the Assyrian Empire, it drained the Assyrian blood. And it left Assyria weak and vulnerable, which is the reason that within 30 years... Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire disappeared from the face of history. The Babylonian uprising against the Assyrian might was the beginning of the end. So in the 7th century, the Pax Assyriaca is a faux pox. It's a false peace. There is tension underneath the surface, and that tension bursts out in terms of the Egyptian hostility and also the Babylonian hostility. These things will come back to haunt the Assyrians later on, although there is an irony involved in the offing. Any questions then about what's going on in Assyria? Assyria is in a state of the seventh in the seventh century BC, Assyria is, a, is in a state of gradual decline. The Assyrian Empire is going to end in the seventh century BC. It's going to end in this century because it's going to die of its own weight. All right, now what about the African power? The African power here, of course, is Egyptian, and it's the rise of the 26th dynasty, the so-called Sate dynasty, which begins with a fellow named Semeticus I. In 664... Semeticus I 
kicked out the Nubian black African kings. He drove them up the Nile Valley back into Central Africa, and he set native Egyptian pharaohs on the throne of Egypt from uh, 664 to 525 B.C. In other words, the Egyptians said, it's time to have one of our own on the throne, and so they uh, kicked out the Nubian monarchs, the 25th dynasty, and established a native Egyptian dynasty. Now, on your map, that is the first map that you see in your packet after this uh, outline on, on the third page, on your map, you will notice an extended dotted arrow that comes out of Egypt, up along the Gaza Strip, which is where Ashkelon is, and then crosses over at Rezipa to the, uh, towards the Tigris and Euphrates uh, River Valley. It comes to an end when it meets a black arrow coming up from Babylon. Now, the date of these meetings of these dark black arrows and that dotted uh, arrow is 616 B.C. <clears throat> who, is, who is coming up out of Egypt? Semeticus I is coming up out of Egypt, and he is joining the Assyrians to oppose the Babylonians. And you say to me, Denison, have you lost your mind? The Egyptians certainly would not have allied themselves with the Assyrians since the Assyrians had invaded Egypt and destroyed the city of Thebes and controlled their country for a number of years. So why would the Egyptians join an alliance with the Assyrians? And the answer is quite simple. Because the Assyrians did not have enough power to stop the rise of the Babylonians. And so 616 is the first attempt of the Assyrians to gather a coalition, including the Egyptians, their former enemies, to gather a coalition to stop the rise of Babylon. Babylon's King Nabopolassar, Babylon's Crown Prince Nebuchadnezzar, they are the rising force in the Fertile Crescent, in the Mesopotamian Valley. So that clash in 616, when the Egyptian-Assyrian coalition meets Nabopolassar's army. That clash ends in a draw. And the Egyptian army withdraws under Semeticus, and what's left of the Assyrian army withdraws to its fate, and the Babylonians withdraw to retool and rearm and to begin to fight another day four years later. So, Semeticus is involved in attempting to defend Assyria. In the late 7th century BC, even as he had been involved in trying to resist Assyria in 663 BC, unsuccessfully. Now, Semeticus, the first son, is Nico II. We know Nico because of what he has done to Josiah, king of Judah. And on the second map in your, in your packet, you will notice once again, dark black arrow that's coming up along the Gaza Strip, which represents the Egyptian army under Nico on its way north to Carchemish, which you can see at the top of your map. 
Now, what is at Carchemish? At Carchemish is a remnant army and a remnant emperor. It is the off-scourings of what is left of the Assyrian Empire after it was destroyed in 612. Those who escaped the destruction of Nineveh fled to the west. One of them was named Assur Ublet III. He became a kind of titular Assyrian emperor in exile. He took some soldiers with him and some nobility, and he settled down in Haran, and he built a garrison fortress there. Nico comes to his aid in 609. He is on his way up to Carchemish to reinforce the remnant of the Assyrian army in Haran and in Carchemish. Why is there the need to go up and reinforce his old enemy, Assyria, or Egyptians, Egypt's old enemy, Assyria? Because once again, Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar have flexed their muscle in moving the Babylonian army to the west. The Babylonian army has attacked that garrison of Assyrians at Haran, and they have driven them back. As you can see the arrows on your map, they have driven them back to Carchemish on the Euphrates. And there, Nico meets the, the Babylonian force of Nabopolassar, the father, and Nebuchadnezzar, the son, and is beaten, beaten badly. Beaten so badly that he turns tail and runs back down the same route he had come north. Now, on his way north, at the Pass of Megiddo, which you see on the map, his archers had slain King Josiah. Josiah tried to stop the army of Egypt going up to uh, Carchemish to reinforce the Assyrians, probably because Josiah did not want to see a rebirth of the oppression of the Assyrian Empire once again. He didn't want to see the rebirth of that tyranny which had subjected Judah to uh, tax and vassalage for years and years. So he did not want to revive the Assyrian Empire. So he's going to stop the ally of Assyria from getting to Carchemish, but he fails. And he's killed in the offing. So Nico goes up. He is defeated by the Babylonian army. He is running back down to Egypt, running away from the Babylonians. And on his way back down at Ribla, he makes a change in the king of Jerusalem. He removes Josiah's son, who is known as Jehoahaz in 2 Kings, known as Shalom in the book of Jeremiah. He removes him from the throne. He reigned only three months which is about the time that it took Nico to go up to Carchemish and come back down. The Bible says he reigned, this, this boy reigned only three months. And Nico unseats him and replaces him with his brother Jehoiakim. So that's how Jehoiakim comes to the throne of Judah. And who puts him on the throne? Nico puts him on the throne. Who controls the throne of Judah? Egypt controls the throne of Judah. Egypt will control the throne of Judah from 609 to 605. So, in summary then, we have 609 as the beginning, with the death of Josiah, the beginning of Egypt's control of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, it only lasts four years, but nonetheless, from 609 to 605, Egypt is calling the shots with Jehoiakim on the throne. 
Now, Nico will do this one more time. Nico will come along that same route in 605. He will go up to Carchemish, as Jeremiah 46, verse 2 says. He will do the second time what he did the first time, and the second time will will be a replay of the first time. He will meet Nebuchadnezzar, not Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, is too old to come to the battlefield in the West in 605, four years after 609. But Nebuchadnezzar is competent enough to defeat Nico and send him running. Only in 605, when Nico turns tail, Nebuchadnezzar chases him. He does not let him go. In 609, the Babylonians let the Egyptians withdraw, did not chase them down through the path that they had come up, did not chase them through Syria and through Judah, etc. But in 605, Nebuchadnezzar says, "Mm -mm. no, I'm going to make sure you go all the way back to Egypt. I'm not going to leave a chance that you may come out and try to oppose me again. So he pursues Nico on that route south. And as he chases Nico back towards Egypt in 605 B.C., he turns aside to lay siege to Jerusalem. This is the first Babylonian siege of the city of Jerusalem in 605. It is the siege in which Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the temple treasury, but he also takes, according to Daniel 1.1, he also takes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego captive. Notice the context, the broader context. This is an international conflict between Babylon and Egypt. And as a result of that conflict, when Babylon pursues Egypt, stops off at Jerusalem, Daniel and his three friends get carried away into exile in Babylon, 605 B.C. Well, Jehoiakim, who is allowed to stay on the throne when Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem in 605, Jehoiakim decides, well, I guess I'm not the puppet of Egypt anymore. I guess I'm the puppet of the new ascending world power, which is Babylon. And so Jehoiakim bows his head to become the servant of Nebuchadnezzar. And now Babylon is controlling the puppet king of Jerusalem, namely Jehoiakim. Until Jehoiakim decides that he's had enough, he's tired of sending his money off to Babylon, He doesn't want to have to collect taxes that he can't use to skim and so on and and use for his own wealth. Typical bureaucrat. So uh, he decides in 597 that he's going to rebel against Babylon. So he he induces a coalition of other nations to join him in throwing off the Babylonian yoke. And Nebuchadnezzar says, ah, well, that's way off there in the West. Doesn't, it doesn't phase uh, uh, my kingdom at all. Well, it does, of course, because there are a lot of trade routes coming up out of Africa along that Gaza Strip. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of wealth flowing up there. And besides that, he doesn't want a state which belongs to a coalition which is against him over there when Judah belongs to him as a buffer state against Egypt. In other words, between Babylon and Africa is Judah. It's a nice little buffer zone. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I need that buffer zone, and you're going to rebel against me, I'm going to come and rebel against you. In other words, I'm going to put down your rebellion because I want that buffer zone, I want to control you. 
So I don't want these Egyptian upstarts coming up and attacking me again. All right, so there's a broad international political picture here in, 60, in 597 when Jehoiakim decides that he's had enough of the Babylonian king. Well, as a result of Jehoiakim's rebellion, it is possible that he was assassinated by the people of Jerusalem because the book of Jeremiah records the fact that his body was thrown over the wall and he had the burial of a dog, which means that he was treated with contempt. And the contempt being that the people of Jerusalem knew that when he rebelled against Babylon, it was going to mean that the army of Babylon was going to be at their gates. And so they killed him and, so to, so to speak, threw him over the wall as perhaps an, an escape offering. But when Nebuchadnezzar did approach Jerusalem in 597, and he did lay his second siege of the city in that year, Jehoiakim, the successor to Jehoiakim, walked out and surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. Possibly an altruistic or eudaimonistic move on his part in order to spare the city. In other words, if he would surrender then Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't take out his full wrath upon Jerusalem and burn the whole thing to the ground. Well, it did work because Nebuchadnezzar captured Jehoiakim, took him captive along with his nobles and his mother and the prophet Ezekiel, amongst others, and took them back to Babylon and left Jerusalem standing but placed a new king over the nation, namely Zedekiah. So... Nebuchadnezzar has been to Jerusalem twice in, by, by 597. Within the space of 10 years, Jerusalem has rebelled against him and against the Babylonian Empire. Zedekiah decides that he'll be a good Babylonian stooge. And for about 10 years, he behaves himself. But then in 587... With the assistance of the Egyptians, a little bit of encouragement from the Egyptian pharaoh, a fellow named Hophra, Zedekiah decides that he's feeling his oats and he doesn't need to send any of his tax money off to Babylon either. He'd rather enjoy all the benefit of his corruption and bureaucracy at home. So he throws off the yoke of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar says, Third time is the last straw. This is it. And in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar marches against Jerusalem for the third and final time. And with a siege which lasted about a year, he destroyed the city. He took Zedekiah captive. He burned out his eyes after he executed his son in front of his face, carried him off into uh, captivity in Babylon along with the rest of the exiles of Judah and Jerusalem, leaving Jeremiah the prophet in the city because Jeremiah had urged the city to surrender in the first place in order to save its life. Babylon then emerges at the end of the 7th century and the beginning of the 6th century as the dominant world power that controls even Judah and Jerusalem. But Judah will not submit. Jerusalem will not obey, even though the prophet Jeremiah, through the Lord, tells Jerusalem and Judah to submit. It is the only way that you will survive, Jeremiah says. If you insist in rebelling against the king of Babylon, you are insisting upon the death of your nation. 
you are insisting upon the rape and destruction and looting of Judah and Jerusalem. If you insist on rebelling against the king of Babylon, then you are going to insist on a death wish. And did the children of Judah and the king, the leader of their nation, listen to their prophet? They did not. They assaulted him. They insulted him. They put him in stocks. They threw him in prison. They put him in a mucky cistern where he nearly suffocated to death. They tried to destroy the prophet of the Lord who told them the truth. The end of the 7th century is Babylon in control. The end of the 7th century is Egypt in retreat. The end of the 7th century is the beginning of the end for Judah and Jerusalem. In the offing, there will no longer be a king of the Jews in Jerusalem after 586 B.C. In the offing, with the exile of the Jews to Babylon, though some will return, there will no longer be a land of promise. In the offing, there will no longer be a temple, though it will be rebuilt in the days of Haggai and Zechariah. Nonetheless, they will say, the glory of this temple is not as the glory of the former one. In the offing, the Lord will say, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth once more. In the offing, there is a land which cannot be occupied by a foreign army. There is a king who is not the the, uh, minion of the forces of darkness as Nebuchadnezzar was. In the offing, there is a son of Judah who is not controlled by Egypt or by Babylon or by Assyria or by Persia, or by Greece, or by Rome, or by any other world power. In the offing, God is saying, there is coming a day when this land will not be the land of your destiny, when this temple will not be the center of your worship, when this Sion of Judah, this son of David, will not be the object of your devotion. There is coming a day, says the Lord, when I will send to you the descendant of Josiah and Hezekiah. In Matthew 1, 1, it's recorded, I will send you the descendant of Hezekiah and Josiah, who will be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is king of a kingdom not like Jerusalem and Judah. He is king of a kingdom like heaven and the throne of glory. He is the Lord of a land which will never be occupied by an enemy, nor will there be any rape, looting, or destruction in that land, for he is the Lord of the land of heaven. And I am sending you one who more than Josiah, for all of his goodness, more than Hezekiah for all of his virtue, more than both Hezekiah and Josiah, who were both foolish in some ways. I am sending you someone who is no fool. I am sending you one who is not just good. He is perfectly good.
And he will bring you to my land. He will bring you to my dimension where there is no temple anymore. He will bring you to a place where there is no more war. And peace, real peace, pax eterna, where eternal peace endures forever and ever and ever. The 7th century B.C. cannot be absolutized. It cannot be made the model of the future of Israel, 2014. No. That model was destroyed in 586 B.C. It has never been recaptured, and even the attempts to produce it by rebellion in 66 A.D. ended in another massive destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by the Romans. You are not called to a land between Asia and Africa. You are not called to a temple in a city on Mount Zion in that land. You are not called to a physical blood descendant of David. You are called to heaven and to the Son of God, eternal in his glory, who has rescued you from everlasting destruction. So our overview of this panorama of the prophetic, national, and international context is to highlight the exceeding and abundant glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we will see Zephaniah project. To that end, next time, we will begin to look at verse 1. Any questions? Yes, David? Um, the campaign, uh, the army coming out of Egypt, uh, those are awfully long supply lines. I take it uh, when they went through the land, they just took whatever they wanted. That is exactly right. They lived off the land as much as they could. Now, they were well equipped, particularly the Assyrian army. It had planned long forays and had well-supplied backed wagon trains along behind it. It was a, it was a policy that Tiglath-Pileser introduced into Assyrian warcraft in the 8th century BC. Any other questions or comments? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we marvel at the detail of this history, and yet we realize that much of it is contained in the pages of Kings and Chronicles, reflected in the prophets of the 7th century B.C. as well, especially Jeremiah. And we bless you for the record and for understanding how in your providence you control all of history, international history, national history, religious history. You control the history of the prophets. You control the history of the kings. You control the history of the nations. It all fits together into your marvelous plan. There's no detail that is out of place according to your sovereign wisdom, decree, and blessing. And out of it all, Lord, we realize that unless we belong to you, the destruction which is certain to come, eternal death which is certain to come, 
would come even to us. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, a nation, which a land which has no boundaries and no limits, a nation of eternity, a heaven of complete and perfect bliss and joy and rest is ours. The free gift. Nothing in our hands required. Gift of faith in our hearts alone. Your gift. We bless you for all of this and for allowing us to even rejoice in it from the standpoint of the 7th century B.C. to set our eyes even 700 years before the time to set our eyes steadfastly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In his blessed name, we thank you. Amen.